Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation with Special Coordinator for Tibetan Issues, Robert A. Destro. The conversation took place November 18, 2020. Several Tibetan American youth also joined the discussion, as did Aftab Parival, Clerk of the Courts for Hamilton County, Ohio, and Dawa Lokitsong, a PhD student at the University of Colorado, Boulder. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Tashi Delek, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I am Matteo Mikachi, and I'm the president of the International Campaign for Tibet. So today we're going to have a special episode of Tibet Talks, and we're going to have two sessions. Uh, I will be the host for the first session, and Tencho will uh, moderate uh, for the second session. Uh, we are very happy today uh, that, you know, the first guest of our first session today has a long history as a human rights advocate and a civil rights attorney with expertise in elections, employment, and constitutional law. He has served as Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor since September 2019. And last month, in October, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo designated him also to serve concurrently as the United States Special Coordinator for Tibetan Issues. So please join me and welcome Assistant Secretary Robert Destro to his first session of today's Tibet Talk. Welcome, Special Coordinator. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a real honor today to be able to join this meeting of the Tibetan Youth Leadership Program. Uh, and I'm grateful to Matteo to, uh, for inviting me to speak, as, as, as well as for giving me a really warm welcome <clears throat> during my first few weeks as the Special Coordinator. Uh, what's great today is to see all these young Tibetan Americans who are interested in taking leadership roles. It couldn't be a, uh, a more opportune time. I guess no time is a more opportune time because uh, it's our window into the future. And so we need more leaders with the energy and a vision for a better future for Tibet and for Tibetans. And uh, let me talk a little bit about you. I mean, we all know we live challenging times. I suppose if you talk to just about anybody through history, they would consider themselves to have been living in challenging times. You know, but it's a good reminder that young leaders like yourselves can make a real difference. And interestingly enough, I mean, unfortunately, we can't do this in public. We can't do this uh, together in, in, in the flesh. You know, but meetings like this one and, and these virtual platforms do make it a little easier to get together over both time and space. And, and these are the settings in which you can meet people, you create and sustain relationships will, that will advance the cause in the years to come. And, you know, just just everybody who's, whose face I can't really see on the screen, but these are the networks on which you're going to be relying for support and inspiration uh, in the years to come. And, and if I've learned anything in my long career in, in civil and human rights, it's that relationships are the key. There's not one relationship that you have that's too small. There's no relationship that's unimportant. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama once said, 
if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. And as we all know, that can make a real difference in your life. So I call on each of you to remember that you have been chosen to serve. You are the servant leaders of the future. And so please remember, as you think about your service, who you are committed to serve. Young leaders like yourselves are important for another reason. It's precisely because you're young leaders that you have a vision for the future. And over time, you're gonna develop a pretty good sense of what you can accomplish together for the long-suffering Tibetan community. This is where we stand with you. We know that the Chinese Communist Party is determined to suppress the language, cultures, religions of China's ethnic minorities. But the United States and our like-minded partners around the world believe and proclaim that the first obligation of government is to respect its citizens and to, re to value their unique contributions to the fabric of society. We respect religious freedom and other human rights because every one of us is a human being. Our nature is, universe, our, our nature is universal, but our needs and particular aspirations are unique to each of us and to each community. So we need to keep in mind that government exists to serve the people, not the other way around. And if you aspire to be leaders, then you exist to serve, that leadership exists to serve the people as well. So we need your leadership and your vision now more than ever. We watch in dismay as the Chinese Communist Party steadily tries to dismantle Tibetan culture, language, and religion. Efforts to sinicize Tibetan Buddhism reveal the callousness, and I would suggest the cluelessness of the Chinese Communist Party as it makes the unsustainable and unsupportable claim that it is the ultimate and only authority over all matters of public interest, including religion. We have to ask ourselves, who put the CCP in charge of religion, language, and culture? The answer is nobody. You don't need me to tell you that throughout the Tibetan areas of China, the government threatens both Tibetans' way of life and Tibetan Buddhist practice and belief. The United States government is not and cannot be silent on this matter. Many members of other religious and spiritual groups in China, including ethnic Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs, other Muslims, Catholics, Protestants, Falun Gong, face similarly severe forms of repression and discrimination because of their beliefs. We call on the PRC government to respect the human rights and fundamental freedoms of all of its citizens. The United States stands with Tibet and with Tibetans from the passage of the Tibetan Policy Act in 2002 and the Reciprocal Access to Tibet Act of 2018 to funding vital Tibetan institutions and fellowships, we work together with the international community to fight against the deterioration and dismantling of Tibetan culture, language, and religion. Your cultural legacy has survived and thrived for more than 2,000 years. Nobody can destroy this heritage. It, leaves on, it lives on today in each of you and stands as a potent symbol of love, compassion, justice, forgiveness, tolerance, and peace to the world just as it has for centuries. Now, whether you like it or not, you bear the burden of carrying that forward. The U.S. State Department's country reports on human rights 
and religious freedom continue to document the PRC's systemic abuse, not only of Tibetans, but of members of ethnic and religious minority groups from Inner Mongolia, Xinjiang, and, other, and elsewhere. Those abuses have not gone unnoticed, and I hope you can find allies and other groups similarly affected who will join with you to speak out and support Tibetan struggle for meaningful autonomy, cultural, and religious preservation. In my role as special coordinator, I hope to be able to facilitate dialogue between His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, his representatives, and Chinese authorities. The CCP's continuous, constant criticism of His Holiness and his refusal to engage with them and his representative shows that the CCP continues to act in bad faith. The basis of every negotiation is compromise and CCP leaders have shown a complete unwillingness to do any such thing. You know, even the most moderate, uh, moderate requests regarding Tibet are just ignored. His Holiness Middle Way approach provides a pragmatic solution to this seemingly intractable conflict. By acknowledging that Tibet is a part of China, His Holiness illustrates that he and his representatives are, not, are neither separatists nor splitists. Such an attribution to His Holiness is untrue and a distraction, and we will continue to call out the PRC on this mischaracterization. We will push for meaningful autonomy in Tibetan areas, as well as respect for the fundamental freedoms that the, the human rights that the PRC routinely violates. We will not stop in our efforts to support the freedom and safety of the 11th Panchen Lama, uh, Gedunshuki Naiya, Naiya Ma, I believe I'm, I'm trying to get there. I apologize for, for, uh, for mangling it, who was kidnapped in 1995 at the age of six, along with his parents. He'd be 31 years old today. Regardless of the CCP's concocted version of the Pachin Lama's well-being, the world does still truly not know his fight, fate or even whether he's still alive. If alive, he's lived most of his life under the close control of the CCP and prevented from living his life freely. It's also uh, that he's lived most of his life under that close control, exactly the same kind of close control the CCP is, has in mind for Tibet. So we call on the PRC to free the 11th Panchen Lama as recognized by His Holiness. We also call on the PRC government to allow all members of the Tibetan Buddhist and other faith communities to practice their faith. Now, what I'm going to do is is cut some of these uh, these comments short because Mateo, I want to be able to interact with the community, yes. and I don't think you need a long speech, you know. But but I think we're all of the same mind here. The question is is what is it that, that we can do as, as people, in my case at least, as people with white hair, you know, can do to, uh, to inspire the next generation and help out? Thank you. Now, thank you very much for your you know, strong statement in support of the Tibetan people. And uh, you can see here now on the screen, you have some, we have some, you know, a small sample of the Tibetan youth who have been participating in our youth leadership program, which we have started in 2000 and nine. So uh, usually it's around 12, 15 every year. So there are over a hundred alumni 
who have graduated from our program uh, that we do every year in uh, in Washington DC. And as part of that program, actually, there's always a meeting with the Office of the Special Coordinator. So we are really thankful for for this opportunity. But I want them to to interact with you directly, and uh, they will introduce themselves. You know, speak about you know their experience in the United States, and uh, you know about their interest on Tibet. So we will begin with uh, Pasan Lamo. Um, hi guys, my name is Pasang Lamo. Um, nice to meet you, um, Mr. Destro. Um, wanted to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, I'm sure you have a very busy schedule. Um, yeah, so just a little bit of a background myself. I actually was born in India, I moved to the States when I was five years old with my family. So I grew up and was um, raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and I am a naturalized uh, uh, citizen. I graduated from Syracuse University with a public policy um, major at the Maxwell School. Um, and uh, the Reciprocal Access to Tibet Act is very deeply personal to me, um, as it is for, for many Tibetan Americans, as well as Tibetan supporters that are journalists and diplomats. Um, and partly the reason why it's so deeply personal to me is because when I was in college, I actually was had a Chinese studies minor. And part of the requirement for the minor was to study abroad. Beijing. Um, I was accepted to the study abroad program, was supposed to do a, a semester at Tsinghua University to practice my Mandarin. Um, I was very excited. Um, if you know anything about Syracuse University, there's a huge international community, especially Chinese students. Um, and throughout my three, four years there, I, you know, had lots of really great interactions. And so I was really fascinated about, you know, bridging the gap. And I know language is always a barrier. So you know, that was partly why I pursued a minor there. Um, and just through that experience, um, I, you know, I tried two semesters to basically get a visa. I had friends in the program who got their visa in two weeks. I was waiting two months to get a visa. And at this point, I reached out to the consulates. I reached out to all the consulates in the US, basically. And I had one response from Texas who responded and said, you know, I had to work with the New York City consulate. So I actually took a bus from Syracuse to New York City. It's a four or five hour bus ride to basically speak with the person there. And when I spoke with the guy there, he basically told me because my name was Tibetan and because I was born in India and I was raised in the West and had a Western education, it was going to be very difficult for me to get a visa. And at this point in time, I connected with my community of people, a lot of other students who also had difficulty. And one thing that I was told was I should censor myself. I should make sure that I don't post anything on Facebook or any social media about any affiliation with students for free to pet, um, any, anything that had some sort of, you know, that showed some sort of devotion to Buddhism or the Dalai Lama. And at that point in time, you know, my thought is, you know, I had this amazing, I just got accepted to this, you know, study abroad program. I just got, you know, the Benjamin Gilman scholarship to study abroad. And so I, I did that. So I censored myself. And it's amazing to me right now, looking back, thinking that I did that. You know, it's kind of embarrassing because, you know, I am very much, I, it, it was a form of like bully, I think. Um, and so essentially, that's why it's so deeply personal to me. And I think you can kind of see why I'm so passionate about this. And so my question to you is, you know, what level of commitment can you, um, Mr. Destro, as well as your, uh, your team, what commitment can you make to me, as well as the Tibetan community, as well as Tibetan supporters um, and journalists that want access to Tibet? What can you commit to us um, to ensure that the, that the bill is fully implemented? And if you can also share any concrete steps that you guys have taken or will take in the new year. 
first of all, I think you violated your self-censorship rule. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that, I tell everyone that I talk with about the story. That, that, <laughs> that ship has sailed, you know, so now you're on your journey. Uh, the, you know, when, when you're like me in government, you, you understand that, that your role is limited. You know, basically, uh, our job is to implement the policy that Congress and the president have, have set out. Now, there's no question that the United States government and, and, and people at the State Department, uh, my colleagues in DRL and elsewhere, you know, are fully committed uh, to standing with you. I mean, and, you know, Tibet is a place, you know, Tibet is defined by its people and its culture. And so the question of how we stand with you is a question that we need to ask you, you know, because at the end of the day, you're the ones who have to carry this ball, you know, and, and the fact, as you found out the hard way, you know, we can, you know, we can implement every single period and comma and semicolon and verb in the Tibet reciprocal, you know, the reciprocal access act. And the Chinese are still going to thumb their nose at you, you know, so because they, that for them, it's about control. That's what they wanted you to do. They wanted you to self-censor that that's about control, you know, and, and as I said, in a, um, in a, uh, a talk to the media online coalition ministerial, that narrative control, and that's what we're seeing is narrative control is incompatible with democracy. It's incompatible with the third way. It's incompatible with the preservation of Chinese language culture. I'm sorry, Tibetan China, uh, Tibetan language culture and and Buddhism. You know, we are human beings. We have to talk to one another, and nobody is in charge of telling us what we should be able to talk about. So the the short answer is: as long as I'm in this role, I'm with you. When I'm out of the role, I'm still with you. You know, and uh, and you know, and and the people at the State Department uh, who work with me are with you too. You know, so you know, all I can say is some things you know we don't talk about openly uh, because you know that's just not a good thing to do. Uh, but I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Destro. Uh, the next one is Rinchen Punso. Rinchen La. Hello, everyone. Um, I would like to thank uh, Special Coordinator Mr. Destro and uh, International Campaign for Tibet for organizing this virtual meeting. Uh, my name is Rinchen and I'm an alumnus of ICT's Youth Leadership Program. I'm currently settled in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, we have a very uh, vibrant and a growing community of Tibetans uh, settled in Utah. Uh, personally, I mostly grew up in India. I was born in India. I went to one of the Central Tibetan Administration's Tibetan schools in India. I came to the United States, finished my doctoral studies, and I'm currently working for uh, working as a biomedical engineer for one of the largest uh, global medical device uh, manufacturers. We develop a lot of health-saving technologies, and uh, some of our divisions are also involved in uh, significant COVID-19-related uh, efforts. Now, the question I have for you, Mr. Destro, is uh, is very close to my heart and very close to the heart of, uh, you know, uh, Tibetans across the world, as well as people and organizations uh, and governments that support the issue of Tibet. 
And uh, one of my biggest concern is um, the, has been the stalemate in, in the dialogue process between the representatives of His Holiness uh, and their Chinese counterparts. Now, historically, we have seen that, uh, you know, we always see a momentum for dialogue. Um, uh, when, whenever there is a sitting president, uh, sitting U.S. president who is vocal about uh, the issues around Tibet and who encourages uh, both the parties to sit on a table and have dialogue. And we have seen that uh, historically in the past as well. Uh, given the current atmosphere of uh, U.S.-China relations, uh, why have we not heard uh, President Trump vocally encourage Sino-Tibetan dialogue? Uh, this would be, uh, I think, in line with, uh, with the current administration's China policy. Uh, as the special coordinator for Tibet, what can you do to, to set that precedent so, so that there is dialogue established between the two parties uh, despite the foreseeable, you know, administrative transition that uh, in the coming days? Well, I think the, the short answer to the question is that that's one of the reasons why Secretary Pompeo put me in this job, is, you know, to open up that dialogue and, uh, and to, to, uh, to look at uh, one of the, to look at the question of what's realistic under the circumstances. I mean, I think that even under the best circumstances, the, the, the thought of meaningful dialogue is tenuous. Uh, and the reason I say that is that this is not about dialogue. It's about control. You know, and that it's always about control. And the whole idea that the Chinese Communist Party has anything to say about reincarnation is kind of laughable, if you ask me. Now, you know, this was one of the, you know, and, and we have made it very clear in our conversations, for example, with the Holy See, you know, that if they're not careful, the Chinese Communist Party is going to want to pick the next pope too. You know, so, the, so the, this question about you, you control yourself, you know, you control your message, and we get to control you. You know, so I do think that it is a question of, of you know being realistic and and since you're a member of that uh kind of far-flung you know next generation of of diaspora community the question is what can somebody like me do whether inside or outside government i might add uh you know what can we do to, to keep the diaspora together and and to to have a plan you know because at the end of the day uh, you know, God made us in such a way that, that we only have a limited time on earth. And, uh, and so the question is, what do we do next? And we better start talking about that now, uh, because as I said during a, uh, a meeting about Tibet last week, my grandparents were immigrants to this country, you know, and, and if there's anything I'm annoyed retrospectively at my late grandmother, maternal grandmother, is that she didn't preserve the language for, for the grandkids. You know, my paternal grandmother did, but my maternal grandmother did not. And so there's no sense of, of that ethnic heritage that, that you know, I, I have a cultural sense of it, you know, but the language makes all the difference and so does the religion. I got that part, you know, but, but you, you have a big job ahead of you. And, and this is where I think uh, we in the U.S. government and other uh, other organizations 
uh, can help you because everybody has an interest in that preservation of their identity. Thank you very much. And um, I'm guessing that your grandparents were from my country, Italy? Uh, yes, they were, all four of them. Uh, all four of them grew up in, uh, in northeastern Sicily. I see, okay. So we'll take up your offers to strategize even if you know if you know you know you're not going to be long any longer in office, but I'll I'll take up some of the Italian language lessons too. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> so we can have some conversation, right, with our hands. Thank you. Uh, we have another one now. Uh, Jigme, Gorak. Hi. Good afternoon, Intestile, Mr. Destro. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for your strong statement about the dire situation in Tibet and how U.S. government stands for the people of Tibet. Um, I also want to thank you for this opportunity for me to talk to you. Um, and first, I want to convey how much we Tibetans appreciate that the U.S. government has appointed uh, the special coordinator for Tibetan issues. Um, this means a lot to us. This clearly demonstrates the U.S. Uh, commitment to the Tibetan uh, cause. Um, so it's really appreciated. In addition, I also appreciate, and we Tibetans also appreciate the fact that you have recently invited the democratically elected president of the Central Tibetan Administration, uh, Dr. Lobson Senge, to the State Department. Um, so my name is Jigme Gorup. Um, I am in the corporate finance field. I was born and raised in India, um, and I, uh, my family and I uh, immigrated to the United States when I was 15 years old. Um, so right now, I have the pleasure of serving as the board member of the Tibetan American Foundation of Minnesota, which is essentially the uh, association for the Tibetans here in Minnesota. Minnesota has the second largest Tibetan population in the United States after New York. Um, unlike, you know, similar to other Tibetan associations, um, our main focus is the preservation of Tibetan culture and language, and also to instill in our youngsters the Tibetan identity which is based out of compassion and moral ethics. So this is something that's very important to us. In addition, um, we, as a, as a Tibetan association, we focus a lot in terms of um, advocating for the just cause of Tibet, uh, as well as observing various Tibetan um, cu uh, cultural occasions and celebrating also many of these um, United States uh, festivals and holidays. Um, so with that said, um, my, real, my question to you, sir, is um, so since President Trump took office in January of 2017, there's been a, over three and a half years gap where um, we did not, no one was appointed as the special coordinator. So, I'm, so I, I'm, I'm trying to understand why it took so long. And more concerning to me is that in a couple of months, we will have the Biden administration taking office. And does that mean that there may be a possibility that we, you know, this position will be vacant. And so that worries us that how long will it go vacant, right, if that's the case. And then my, lastly, my question is, we, are, we of course always want the special coordinator's position to be in a, you know, in a high profile and very visible manner, right? In the past, it used to be under undersecretary and now it's under assistant secretary. So what is it that we can do, what we, how we can lobby where this role this very important role, as we see it, can be elevated as high as possible within the U.S. government. Thank you, sir. Okay, let me start with your last question first. Uh, the the um, 
<clears throat> right now, the, uh, the this position, uh, special coordinator has has occasionally been at the assistant secretary level before. You know, then it got moved up to the uh, undersecretary level. Uh, we don't have an undersecretary right now. And so the question is, how long do you let it be vacant? You know, and I think that was a uh, that was a question uh, that the secretary finally said, look, you know, we got to get this done. Okay, so the question of don't mistake the uh, the idea that you don't have a figurehead like me for the fact that the United States government isn't doing anything. You know, now the benefit of having somebody like me, you know, with a title is that people return your calls, you know, and, and they take them seriously. And and I've been making uh, calls, you know, but, uh, and, and people have, re, you know, people return them. And in, uh, in many respects, I have asked some some very difficult questions of our friends, uh, and and have asked uh, for access to to His Holiness, and uh, and you know, and look, we have to understand that transitions are never easy, you know. But the fact is that you have a uh, we have a staff, a dedicated, wonderful staff uh, at at DRL. And that uh, you know, it's not unknown. I know that my predecessor, uh, now Congressman Tom Malinowski, you know, stayed in touch with the staff. I fully intend to stay in touch with the staff to the extent that that's appropriate, you know. And and I would like to stay in touch with all of you, you know. So this this question, what can we do, you know? I have to say, don't focus on the government. You have to look. You have to, as my wife always reminds me. Put your own face mask on first, and then help the people around you. You know, so the the whole question is, how do you, how do we all work together to keep get and keep the community focused? And then the question, what's the highest priority for that focus, is really for all of you to decide, and then for you to reach out to your friends like me and say, okay, here's how you, how do you think you can help us get X done? You know, I'm a big fan of wish lists. You know, I think you should have one. If you don't have one, you should put one together. You know, but uh, but you know, sometimes they're just small in terms of time commitment, but big in terms of symbolism, like the invitation of the president to come visit. You know, so so you know, I'm not sure that that really answers your question. Uh, what I really want to do is is look forward. You know, because having grown up in an immigrant community, I know all too well the the um the homogenizing pressures of the new society and uh and and that's you know demographics unfortunately is the enemy and so it's i really commend you and the community in minnesota for trying to keep it together thank you uh thank you very much uh, for your you know answers, I don't know if you have another couple of minutes. We have also one more students. If you have, yeah, no, I can do one more. I have to. I have another call at one forty-five. But you know, we have Tenzin, our uh, student, actually, who wanted to participate in our program this year, but you know, we are doing this virtually. So Tenzin, please go ahead. Thank you, thank you, uh, Tashi Delek. Hello, Mr. Uh, Special Coordinator Destro. 
Um, I just first wanted to thank you, Special Coordinator, for spending some of your time with us and allowing us to ask questions. My name is Tenzin Jelsang. I'm from uh, Minnesota. I'm a freshman in college and I was born in the United States. I live and work with most Tibetans in my community. I've uh, been born, I was born in Minnesota, so uh, I've grown up with many Tibetans and uh, lots of my friends are now students in college looking towards their future. I just wanted to drop a quick quote uh, from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the Jaramunchi, before I ask my question. Uh, the quote is, uh, the world doesn't belong to leaders, the world belongs to all humanity. And this leads into my question today, sir. And my question for you, Mr. Special Coordinator, is what would you say is the best way for Tibetan American students and teens um, to get involved in the American political process and make change for our time and for the future? Well, that's a great question, and uh, and you know it is uh, one of the things. I, and I mentioned this in in my remarks that it wasn't until maybe about 15 years ago that it really hit me that it's really all about relationships. You know, not only the relationships you have within the Tibetan community, but the relationships you have in in the greater community. In, in Minnesota, you know, and, and you have to remember what the late former Speaker of the House, Thomas P. Tip O'Neill said, which is basically all politics is local, you know, and, and so the, uh, so I think that you, I think you need to, to realize that you already have what it takes, you know, but you need to be persistent, you know, and you need to be specific. You know, don't walk into a congressperson's office and say, we need you to help the community. You know, you need to say, here's what we want. Here's three things that we want, you know, and, and you know, and if you assume, uh, as I always did when I talked to my mom, that she was going to say no ritually to the first one, I would always make the one I really wanted number two or three. You know, so you have to have a strategic sense of what can, what can they deliver? what what is realistic under the circumstances i mean that's why i made the comments that i did about dialogue with the ccp i mean do you think seriously that that mr xi you know is going to sit down with the dalai lama you know i don't think that's going to happen anytime soon i pray that it does you know i don't i don't have any reasonable expectation that it will but i can guarantee you if you show up as a college freshman in your congressperson's local office and say, look, I want, to, I want to work with you on Tibetan issues. If they throw you out, I'll be real surprised. But that is how these relationships get started. And you never, never know. You know, that's why, you know, the, 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 the hallmark of Tibetan Buddhism is that sense of community. You never, never know which relationship you will form you know, that will, that eventually will, you can use eventually later. It's not just a question of what you can get out of it. It's a question of if you have a real relationship with people, it's what all of you get out of it. So I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to run. Uh, my uh, assistant is, is, uh, is, is just called me on the other line and it says, so thank you for your time. Uh, thanks for having me, Mateo. Thank you so much for the invitation. You know, thanks to my staff for all the prep work that they did uh, to help me get ready for this. Thank you so much and have a good have a good afternoon.
Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And we're joining you also in thanking your staff. It's been very, very helpful. Great. Thank you. And we are going to start now with the second session of our program. So I'm going to call on uh, uh, Tencho, who's going to moderate uh, this uh, session. And we're going to have Aftab Purival and Dawa Lokisan. So they're going to continue this session. And we thank you all uh, the alumni of the Youth Leadership Program for you know your wonderful questions and interactions with uh, Special Coordinator Destro. Tencho, you have the floor. Thank you, Matteo. And um, we're ready to begin our second uh, panel here with our two guests, Aftab and uh, Dawa. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, for this session, um, we'll be uh, focusing on our conversation on the Tibetan American experience. Tibetan Americans are a small immigrant community. I think we have only like around 20,000 uh, of us in the United States, but we have been able to make good strides. I think our um, culture and heritage teaches us to be hardworking and become contributing members of whatever society we're in. Having His Holiness uh, as our source of inspiration has shaped and guided us uh, through some very difficult times. For myself, I'm a first-generation Tibetan refugee born in India. I grew up mostly uh, in Dharamsala in the late 60s and 70s when life was quite different. And um, we were a struggling refugee community. I first uh, visited the United States in the early uh, 1990s, soon after Congress had passed the Tibetan Resettlement Act, which brought a group of 1,000 Tibetans uh, to the United States. And thanks to this act, we now have a new generation of Tibetan Americans born and brought up here, and a generation that is learning to thrive and build on the opportunities uh, that are available here. So just to put a little context uh, into our conversation at ICT, one of the efforts that um, we've done is to introduce and education this new generation, introduce and educate a new generation on um, US policy on Tibet, how it's shaped, um, and how even uh, ordinary citizens um, can be involved in advocating for Tibet. And as part of that conversation, we've invited both of you here um, so we can learn from your experiences also as Tibetan Americans who are engaged in some sort of um, public policy. So to begin uh, uh, the conversation, um, I want to first ask you both to um, share a little about yourselves. Uh, tell us uh, what you are doing currently and um, how did you uh, end up your journey uh, getting here. So maybe I can start uh, with you after. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've been really, really looking forward to this day, to this chat. Uh, my, my full name is Aftab Karma Singh Purebal, and my name reflects my uh, heritage and my culture. Uh, my story, not unlike a lot of the young Tibetans uh, watching today, uh, is 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 a Tibet, uniquely Tibetan story. I'm the son of a refugee. My uh, family was forced to flee their home in Tibet when the communist Chinese invaded. So my grandparents picked up, made their way through the Himalayas, uh, through Nepal and into India, 
they spent the family spent some time in Valley Uh they ended up settling up on doing a near the city. So my mom was kind of grew up in the town. She got an education. She made it to college where she met my father who's from Punjab, India. They, they, the young couple got, got uh, fell in love, they got married, and they decided to come to the new world. They decided to come to the United States. So my, so my dad, who's a little bit crazy, looked at a map of, of our great country, and from sea to shining sea, from New York to California, this man literally could have gone anywhere. And he chose Beaver Creek, Ohio. <laughs> no idea what he was thinking. But my parents immigrated here in 1980. I was born a couple years later, went to public schools, then off to Ohio State for college, went to law school. After law school, uh, I've, I've worked as uh, at a very large law firm in Washington, D.C., practicing antitrust litigation. I've also been a federal prosecutor. Most recently, I was the global attorney for Oil of Olay, Procter & Gamble skincare company, which technically makes me a beauty attorney, which is ridiculous. Uh, but then in 2016, I decided to run for office. I didn't decide to run for, for mayor or city council. I decided to run for the Hamilton County Clerk of Courts. And right off the bat, people would tell me, are you crazy? I mean, these are Democrats, progressives saying this. They would say, are you crazy? You're going to run for an office nobody cares about or has heard of against a Republican incumbent who can't be beaten in conservative Hamilton County. In order to do that, you have to leave your job at Procter & Gamble. And oh, by the way, you're a brown dude named Aftab, which is you know, not a strong ballot name in, in Southern Ohio. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was just my mom saying those things, right? I mean, she, she's still hoping I make, make it to med school. But, but, but I ran anyway, I ran as hard as I could. Uh, and at the end of the day, I won. And by winning, I became the first Democrat in a hundred years to hold that position. And I think, I think I'm the, 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 the first Tibetan to hold a countywide elected office in the United States, which is just such an incredible honor for me. You probably know me best because of my con congressional ran, run. I ran for Congress, US Congress in 2018 in one of the most competitive, most targeted races in the entire country in that cycle. Uh, and through that experience, I, I connected with so many Tibetans across the world on social media. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and that brings me to today, which is why I'm so thrilled to be here and, and have this conversation with you. Thank you. Um, 2018, when you ran, we were all watching and rooting for you. So there was a lot of excitement when all of a sudden we saw, you know, a Tibetan running. So um, we'll talk more about that. I want to ask you more about that. But first, I want to go to Dawa also and Dawa, share your experience uh, with us. Um, so a brief about myself. Um, hello to everybody and thank you for this opportunity today. I was also following your um, your run for the Democratic seat. Um, so it's nice to see you here. Uh, so my story begun, begins with Dharamsala. I was born and raised in Dharamsala until I was about 10 years old. Um, prior to that, my dad had um, in the 90s, um, about a hundred, a thousand Tibetans were granted uh, to be um, to migrate to the U.S. Um, under the um, efforts that His Holiness and the Office of Tibet in um, in New York had um, pushed for that, and they succeeded in being able to have um, a thousand Tibetans uh, move to the United States and start a new kind of exile. My dad was a um, part of that, 
prior to that, he had been um, going to the Tibetan boarding school system and um, had uh, been working as a Tibetan civil servant in Dharamsala. So in many ways, my journey is heavily influenced by the kinds of kinds of experiences he's been through. And um, so after he migrated to the US, uh, you know, family re reunification programs were was allowed to, through that I was able to come with my um, family. I'm the oldest of four. We moved, moved, moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I, I know Pasang, um, who was one of the participants just now. Um, and in Cambridge, um, I, I attended the public school, um, elementary school, high school, and then went to UMass Amherst and uh, majored in social theory and political economy. And during that time, I uh, participated in a lot of um, uh, political Tibetan kinds of activities. Um, and that kind of gave me an avenue for participating in participating in Tibet at a larger scale, but also uh, with Tibet issues. And then um, from there, I tried to delve into the Tibetan grassroots political advocacy world. Um, I would say my tryst with uh, Students for Free Tibet um, influenced me to kind of basically explore what I can do as a US citizen uh, to figure out how we can maneuver that as a way to uh, you know, engage Tibet at the US policy level. Through that exposure, I was um, starting to get the idea that you know, for us to engage Tibet at a higher level, I needed to engage myself, I needed to teach myself. Um, a lot of the questions I had about Tibet you know, growing up in the U.S., we don't necessarily get to learn about Tibetan history or culture, anything like that. So um, kind of growing up away, isolated from Tibetan culture kind of shaped a lot of my wants and desire for educating myself. I was, um, even though I moved to the, to the United States, my dad was adamant that I did not lose contact with the Tibetan community. So I was sent um, when I was 15 to TCV for the summer program that they had started. I was part of the second batch. Um, and what that experience taught me was um, <clears throat> I realized I couldn't speak to them that well. And um, that I also realized I really enjoyed being in Tibetan environments and I had missed it. Um, and so it, it kind of encouraged me to, um, to continue to engage Dharamsala. Um, as my childhood home, but also um, a place where I could um, access the Tibetan community as a lived uh, society. Uh, through that experience, I, after college, I wanted to come back and study Tibetan uh, more seriously. So I attended um, Sara College, uh, at the, which is a higher education center in Lower Dharamsala for um, students studying Tibetan studies. Um, and through that, I was able to slowly kind of realize that I wanted to um, pursue Tibetan studies more seriously. And I also had the understanding that my language in English was much stronger than um, Tibetan. And uh, my training, educational training, had heavily been influenced by American education. So um, I decided to pursue a master's um, just to see how it would go in um, anthropology. I just wanted to give it a try to see how it went. And um, I ended up really liking it and realized that academia could be an avenue for shaping discourses on Tibet, which I was oftentimes um, disappointed with in the United States uh, and in the West in general. Um, Tibet is talked about in a very kind of uh, 
you know, a cause sort of way, um, but not necessarily engaged in a serious manner. Um, I was frustrated with a lot of that through my activism um, experience. So I wanted to be in avenues that could actually shape discourse. Um, and for me, discourse is important because discourse shapes language and policy. And that shapes, um, you know, actual structural um, ways of approaching these issues. So. I um, started going into academia more seriously as a way to kind of intervene on the discourse on Tibet, um, heavily in the West, that was um, focused more on Tibetan victimization rather than um, the political issue of Tibet in terms of sovereignty. That's where I started to kind of shift towards. And right now I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology, and I'm actually focusing on the Tibetan school system, the development of the Tibetan schools in exile, which, which your mother is heavily part of, um, you know, ensuring and basically ensuring the future of <laughs> the future generations of Tibetans, for which I am a product of. Right now, I'm in my fieldwork period, and uh, that's my journey in a nutshell. Thank you, Dara, for sharing that. And you've grown up mm -hmm. quite uh, closely with the Tibetan um, community and connected. Um, you've had that, but um, so uh, turning to after. You said your father picked Ohio in the middle of America, and you were probably the only Tibetan family living. <laughs> so, how did you did? Were you able to stay connected with your Tibetan, um, uh, you know, community or roots or family, or how did that go for you? Yeah, you know, it's. I'm so jealous of uh, Dawa's uh, story in many ways because for me, it's been a real challenge. I mean, first and foremost, to your point. There are just not a lot of Tibetans in Southern Ohio. They're just, it's just me, right? It's basically me. And, and particularly growing up as a child of the 80s and 90s, you know, the, the technology just wasn't there to connect across the globe. I, I, I have this strong memory as a child, my mom would, would have these special calling cards that she would buy from the Indian grocery store, right? And we would use these cards to call India and Nepal. But the, the Tibetan diaspora has had many negative effects, but disconnecting our community, for me personally, has been one of the main struggles. You know, my mom is the eldest of 11, and her brothers and sisters are truly all over the world. So we try to keep in touch with them, but, but it is challenging. What made it even more difficult is that my parents had nothing and knew no one when they moved here in, in 1980. So there wasn't a lot of disposable income to travel the world, you know, but, but my parents did make it a priority and they did save. And every two years or so, we would travel to India and Nepal to spend the summer with my family. While my friends were going to Florida or South Carolina or Hawaii, I was flying across the Pacific to spend the summer with my cousins in Kathmandu. I mean, my, my friends couldn't even pronounce Kathmandu, let alone know where it was. I mean, they, they thought I was crazy. And, and, and on that point, being a child of mixed ethnicity, half Indian and half Tibetan, growing up in a place like Beaver Creek, Ohio, which is just incredibly uh, homogenous, it was really difficult. I went through several identity crises. Am I Tibetan? Am I Indian? Am I American? You know, it, it was hard because I, I didn't have easy access to a Tibetan community from the middle of the country. But, but as I got older and as technology improved, it was easier and easier to find communities of Tibetans and to connect with family and friends from around the world, either via social media or email or, or whatever it was. And then of course, as I mentioned earlier, when I ran for Congress, the Tibetan diaspora, the community from, from the four corners of the globe 
was just so incredibly supportive and loving. And being able to connect with, with so many Tibetans was by far my favorite part of running for Congress. Because for the first time in a long time, it didn't feel like I was alone. It felt like I was part of something bigger than myself. And, and I don't speak for all Tibetans, but for me, that was the first time I'd ever felt like that. Yep, as you're right, growing up. And nowadays, it's much easier. I still remember those times when we had to use the calling cards or before that. And me, for me, growing up, it was um, trunk calls where you have to wait for hours um, for the call to come through. And um, in that sense, today, we're here live. You're from uh, Ohio there from Massachusetts talking, and we have viewers listening from India and from everywhere. So um, we do have the um, luxury of being more connected. So I think um, going forward, it's part of partly for us to figure out how to bring these connections to even deeper levels and better ways. Um, so my next question for both of you is, um, Dawa, you know, you've been going and uh, doing um, research, as you said, um, learning more about, um, you know, the education system, and you've done some research on women leaders and things within the Tibetan community. So maybe I was thinking, uh, could ask you to share a little about uh, that. How has that experience um, been? Uh, so I've been going to Dharamsala kind of um, nonstop since 2007. Um, initially as a student at Sara Institute, and then coming back as a research student. Um, and I've been, uh, through that, I've been able to kind of maintain my connections and kind of, I mean, I think essentially Tibetan refugees live in diasporic islands, right, um, across the world. And I think um, my um, chosen path as a student has allowed me to continue to have connections across the diaspora. And I think for a long time after I left Dharamsala, it felt as if you're going in a linear kind of trajectory, but um, you know, being able to come back and study Tibetan and then come back as a researcher to kind of get a better idea of the Tibetan community kind of allowed me to um, not have to feel like I had to choose one over the other. In many ways, it allowed me to have these diasporic connections and one feet in. So as a result, um, I was able to kind of, you know, live half my life in uh, Tibetan communities. And I think uh, that's basically been my experience uh, growing up in the in Massachusetts too. My dad was um, the first Tibetan Association president here, and um, through him, I was able to constantly be engaged in community welfare kinds of conversations and activities through his involvement, whether I wanted to participate or not. I was indirectly exposed. What I essentially, um, well, my first challenge when I came in as a you know, some like I actually went back to Dharamsala after college because I wanted to volunteer and I wanted to give back. Um, that's something that we learn in, in America. Um, what I learned is uh, actually I need to start with teaching myself about Tibet, um, the political history. How did we get here? How did this community come into existence? And what kind of role can I play to be able to um, participate at a capacity that I think is about activating your role as a member of this growing diaspora community. Um, I mean, I, I tried to help. I was, uh, before they had the um, internship program for Tibetans Abroad, um, I went and participated at the environmental desk 
um, as a volunteer and um, tried to look at uh, environmental situations in Tibet. At the time, the, the railway between Ando and Lhasa had just been built, uh, which was constructed in 2006. And um, while I was trying to look up that, do, do that research, I was trying to see what role I can play to help Dharamsala community and then slowly kind of realized that I had to do a lot of learning about even understanding that, you know, there's different ways of understanding the Tibetan community on a raced and gendered and classed scales, not just in Dharamsala, but also in larger Tibet. And um, coming to understand, like, I think essentially a lot of my pathway and work has been a way for me to teach myself about Tibet. And that hasn't changed. I mean, I'm essentially learning about the Tibetan school system right now. Um, I wasn't really part of it, but um, I'm trying to understand it and learn about it and come up with a way to talk about it that honors that legacy and history, which has produced the, um, the kind of generations that came and um, built a new kind of exile in um, the West, for example. My like my challenges have been um, myself, actually. So I think a lot of it um, slowly realizing that, you know, you actually don't know much and that you should actually start with um, teaching yourself. And then um, in, through that avenue, I've been able to like I, I've written on gender and a lot of that had to do with the fact that I wanted to understand how gender functioned in the Tibetan community through Tibetan cultural idioms and uh, these projects became an avenue for me to, to teach myself. And then, you know, my publication became an avenue for me to share that with other Tibetans. Most of it has been just me trying to teach myself and trying to find ways for my work to be, um, be accessible for other people who are going through this similar kinds of things. I'm not sure if I <laughs> answered that question. No, thank you, Dawa. Uh, no, it is uh, important. Uh, uh, aspect of learning and uh, appreciating how we come to where we are. Sometimes we forget uh, what happened over the journey. So I'm glad younger Tibetans like yourself are looking into it. And um, that's part of it is um, really figuring out how to tell our own story and shape and our own history and what happened uh, and not to be voices uh, for that. Uh, so you're one of those who are figuring out how to do that, and that's really great. And now I want to turn to uh, Aftab. Um, can you share, you know, um, tell us about your uh, experience engaging in political activities? You know, as you said, as a Tibetan uh, of India, you know, Indian and Tibetan origin, and um, running for office in the United States—that's a big deal. So I think, um, you know, can you share about that experience? You know, what are the challenges and what are opportunities for other young Tibetans out there listening to us today? Yeah, look, look I'm, I'm going to be honest, right? There's no question that there are challenges to running for office when you have my name, uh, you look like me, you have my ethnicity, my culture, and my heritage. And when you're running in a place like, uh, Southern Ohio, you know, just to be clear, this is not one of those situations where there's uh, more people of color than non-people of color, right? There are pretty much uh, uh, only uh, Caucasians uh, and, and African-Americans here. The, the Asian population is, is, is not very large. So there's, there's real challenges um, when, when, when your name is Aftab Karma Singh, uh, 
to, to, to ask people to vote for you. There's just a lot of barriers there. And, and some people will overtly, some people will subtly uh, have prejudgments about you. But you know what, what makes me hopeful is how many people are inclusive and able to consider, as, as Dr. King says, the content of your character rather than the color of your skin. There's, there's just a lot more that unites us than divides us. And I think for all Tibetan Americans, if, if we show our commitment to the community, if we engage with the people around us, good things will happen. I mean, I, I, public service is, is just so incredibly important, particularly now. And it should resonate even more, I think, with our community because we know firsthand and personally, so personally, the devastating effects that can happen when government or governments make bad decisions. And that's why you know, I'm, I'm so inspired to continue to be in the arena and continue to fight for causes and issues and communities that I care about, because fundamentally this country, the United States, I believe is special. I, I, know, I know it's a very divided and partisan time, I, I get that. But I really believe that it is a special place worth fighting for, because in one generation, my family went from being refugees to now holding a countywide elected position. And that story only happens in this country. But that dream, that American dream, doesn't just happen. You and me, we have to fight for it every single day to make it happen. So I encourage all people listening to this, particularly the young Tibetans, to get into the arena because change will only happen if you make it happen. And, and, and listen, there will be haters, right? People will tell you, uh, just like they told me, that you're too young, or you're too inexperienced, or you're, or you're too brown, or your accent is too strong, or your name is too funny, there will be people who tell you that you can't do it. And you know what? That is crap. The truth is you are exactly who we need in public service right now. And it will be hard. And there will be times when you'll wanna give up. I mean, I have those moments too. But you have to remember that you are Tibetan and you can do anything. When I have those moments, I reflect on the extraordinary courage of my Tibetan grandmother to bring her family across the Himalayas to safety. Or I think of the, the blind courage of my Tibetan mother to move to this country knowing no one and having nothing. And their courage gives me courage. That's absolutely true of that. We all look uh to the elder generation who sacrificed so much for us to be where we are today. We have a lot of viewers online um, and many of them um, saying they're very proud of both of you. You are role models for younger generations. Keep it up, there's Tupten Chamba over here. So I just wanted to share that and I um, reciprocate um, his feelings also. So I want to ask you also, um, for the young viewers who are listening today, can you um, share from your experience, from your um, experience, um, some tips? You know, um, from I mean, Dawa, you've attended so many of the uh, programs in um, Dharamsala and elsewhere that are available. You know, maybe you've attended our youth leadership program. Where, you know, some of those maybe you could share something uh, on those uh, lines. And after you also on your way uh, to where you are now, what were 
uh, you know, things um, that were helpful for you as, as you were, you know, um, studying and going through to get here. So, Dawala, please. So, I was able to do a lot of uh, students who are free Tibet conferences, and, and then I also got to participate in the second um, ICT Youth Leadership Program. I did it when I was 17, and again, this was my father <laughs> pushing me to do it. And um, at the time, I can say that I had no idea what these gatherings were, but all of them has heavily shaped uh, where, have, where I am now. ICT is also where I got to meet Lodigeri for the first time, too, um, and um, the late Lodigeri. I mean, at the time, they just felt like really informative sessions on Tibet, um, and, which is not something that you get with the American educational curriculum because it doesn't have Tibet in it. Um, being exposed to these kinds of teach-in sessions for um, whether it's about Tibetan history or uh, contemporary Tibetan issues or in, in terms of ICT, what kind of lobbying activities are effectful in, uh, at the Capitol. Uh, these were all really informative sessions in, 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 in being able to let me, let, let me understand that I can activate um, my citizenship as an avenue for engaging um, my heritage um, and current uh, situations inside Tibet. So, and on, on the other hand, it also allowed me to, you know, meet and network with other Tibetans. Um, I went to a school that was predominantly um, filled with American kids, not a lot of Tibetans. So these these events also became an um, allowed me to engage in Tibetan friendships. I will say that through the activism circuit, I have built strong female friendships with other Tibetans living across um, the, the West. Um, some of them are still involved in Tibetan advocacy. A lot of them are, uh, are from mixed heritage too. These networks have allowed me to sustain friendships on a personal level, but also friendships that you know engage. Um, like these friendships were also engaged because we we had similar um, dreams and ideas about what we wanted to do when it came to Tibet. So a lot of these women continue to um, encourage me and vice versa. I think these events can be really important for young Tibetans as an avenue for engaging and activating their rights as citizens, U.S. citizens, to you know engage Tibet at a higher level. I wanted to quickly say uh, before I forget that. I do think that right now we need to pay attention to the fact that China is agitating the borders in Asia. Um, it's agitating um, like the border in India, Nepal, Myanmar, and um, Taiwan right now. And there is a um, move um, by these governments to push back on China when it comes to border issues. And I think the US it can actually push back too. And a lot of what's interesting for, to me about um, the recent uh, case in Tawang, for example, the chief minister there, who's a Minpa, who recently um, pushed back on China saying, we don't have a history with China, we have a history with Tibet. These things are extremely important. I think there's ways for the US government to push, push on policies that they, the one China policy, for example, I think there can be push to recognize Tibet's historic sovereignty as a way to push back on these uh, border issues because they're reactivating Himalayan Kingdom treaty histories on the border that had to do with Tibetan government. And so they're reigniting these old histories to China's using Tibetan history to claim these borders. And border communities themselves are, you know, speaking back saying, these are not your treaties. These are Tibetan government treaties. 
So, I mean, I, these border histories are going to keep coming back alive. And I do think that there is an avenue for Tibetans to push on these to get um, your government to act on recognizing Tibet's historic sovereignty as a way to push back on this, you know, China's Belt Road Initiative imperial um, imperatives in Asia and going into Europe. So I do want to say, you know, like my experience at the Capitol through ICT, what that has taught me is, you know, know what are the Tibet issues and Tibet cards that you do have right now, follow current issues um, in Asia right now. I mean, and right now the BRI is right, um, the Belt Road Initiative is the issue right now and border is becoming an issue. So I do think it's the time right now to get representatives to push on recognizing Tibet's historic sovereign claims as a way to push back. And um, I think that could be one of the avenues for Tibet policy lobbying activities to engage Tibet right now. Absolutely, Tawa, and I want you to come back for our Tibet Lobby Day with us um, here next year early. Thank you. Um, after? I'm, I'm sure you know this, but the, the dirty little secret is that particularly families who have been here in this country for generations, it's easier for their children to get ahead because their mom or dad uh, is friends with someone in a high place or their mom or dad went to school with someone who, who is in a decision-making position or they, you know, have have mutual friends, or or whatever it is that 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 network, that legacy, oftentimes is more important than uh, your experience or your resume when you're competing for a job. Unfortunately, that's just true. And and so for me, and for so many other uh, first generation Tibetans, it can be hard to compete for those positions, for those internships, for those jobs because our parents uh, don't have that built-in network, right? Because oftentimes our parents didn't go to school here or have not been in this country for very long. And so first and foremost, it's harder. It's going to be harder for you. And, and, and the earlier you realize that, digest it, see it for what it is, and then move on, I think the better. So first and foremost, it's gonna be harder. But the second thing is you got to create You've got to manufacture that network out of whole cloth, out of thin air. And you have to do, in, in order to, to, to get ahead, to be competitive, to even the playing field with folks who have built-in networks because of their parents, you have to do that work yourself. And so, and so joining you know, these conferences, uh, uh, going to these, uh, in, in the era of pandemic, these virtual events, trying to connect with as many Tibetans or as many Tibetan allies that are in uh, decision-making positions is going to be critically important. And, and it's, it's more than just attending something, right? You have to have a strategy, as our previous speaker said, you can't just say, hey, can you help me? You have to say, uh, this is what specifically I need help with. Uh, and, and it's not enough to just go to a networking event. You have to go and actually talk to people. It's very uncomfortable. It, 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 it requires a lot of confidence, but but if you can if you can achieve those goals strategically, then you'll be able to have that network that will definitely help you into the future. That's certainly what I've learned as I try to make my way into this po this political realm, building that network and using that network, finding a mentor, finding a professor that's interested in you that will invest in you. Those relationships and that network is so critically important. Absolutely. Thank you, Aftab, um, for mentioning that uh, being 
working at ICT here in DC, I've also learned um, that that network is so important. And um, one of the things I think um, for those listening, what we provide uh, at International Campaign for Tibet is we do an annual Tibet Lobby Day where we bring Tibetan Americans to DC to meet congressional officers and do lobbying. So it's a, we do the training and uh, we're finding a lot of high school and younger college students coming and they really learn from the experience. So that's something we're trying to provide. And uh, since past two years, um, Dawa mentioned Lodi Geri. Lodi Geri was um, uh, the co-founder of ICTR organization. He served as a uh, representative uh, of His Holiness in, uh, special envoy of His Holiness in Washington, DC, and was the top Tibetan diplomat in DC, making all these connections for us. So in his memory, we started a um, internship Pro placement program. So we've placed um, in 2018, there were two interns we placed in congressional offices. Again, in 2019, we did that. This year, we weren't able to do it with the pandemic, but we had actually uh, confirmed um, five uh, internships this year. But due to the pandemic, it didn't come through, but we're hoping to continue and um, build on these um, as platforms for um, Tibetan Americans to um, uh, build networks and um, grow. So that's, um, I wanted to share that. And with that, I, I really have to thank you both to, for staying on longer than um, we had intended and giving us more time. I really enjoyed the conversation and we'll keep the conversation going. So I want to stay connected with you both. Um, and as we end off now, I uh, just wanted to thank you both again very much. And I also want to thank all the Tibetan associations who've been sharing this video and sharing it with the communities and um, special thanks for them. Okay, as I uh, end uh, of this program, I want to let you know that our next episode will be on December 10th. We have, uh, we'll be celebrating uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's 31st uh, Nobel Award anniversary and we've invited Geshe uh, Tupte Jimba for the program, and we'll um, reflect on His Holiness's message uh, of peace and compassion, not only to benefit Tibet, but to benefit the entire world. Um, we hope to see you then. For previous shows, please visit savetibet.org slash live. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for your continued support of International Campaign for Tibet. And um, see you December 10th. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.